I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. After seven weeks of a break, I think it's seven, been seven weeks since we were in the book of Romans, we come back. And uh, we're going to be here throughout the rest of the summer, probably into August, as we finish out the book. We're, you know, we're 70% of the way through, and uh, now we begin in chapter 12, where, where Paul has a predictable pattern. Uh, in fact, uh, he has this pattern in several of his books. If you go to the book of Ephesians, for example, you'll see that the first uh, you know, three chapters are very doctrinal. And then he has a, a doxology of praise. It's like the, the doctrine and the teachings of Christ so filled his heart that he has to write uh, a, a portion of praise to God. And then the, the, the book shifts its focus to application. So in the book of Ephesians, you know, the last half is you know, instructions on marriage and child, you know, bearing, uh, you know, raising your children and spiritual warfare and all that. Well, he does the same thing in the book of Romans. We've had you know, uh, 11 chapters of deep teaching and the doctrines of God's grace put before us. It concluded when, at the end of chapter 11 with this phenomenal doxology of praise, right? And now in chapter 12, we shift attention. It shifts focus to application from chapters 12 to 16. In fact, if you haven't noticed, I kind of try, at least in probably the normal average sermon, I follow a similar pattern, right? Uh, the, the first portion, maybe 70, 60, 70% of my message tends to be, you know, teaching and explaining and doctrinal and, and understanding what the Word of God says, and then try to have a portion of application. And, it, and, and I kind of make that transition with you. Uh, oftentimes, not always, with a little two-word question. I'll ask it, or you'll, I'll have you ask it. You know what the two words are? What are they? So what? Good job. Somebody got, so what? And so this series of messages is entitled, so chapters 12 to 16, we're calling the book of Romans, so what? So what? All right? And so this is where we're going to be for the rest of the summer, answering that question, so what, in this book. And so we'll see some very practical applications. Uh, we'll get into spiritual gifts and serving one another and personal relationships and how to respond when people have wronged you. We're going to have a series of messages on unity and diversity uh, within diversity uh, because chapters 14 and 15 are big ones. So we have some very practical topics and themes coming up as Paul applies what he's already brought to us in the first 11 chapters but it starts with these two verses. In fact, these two verses really are so important. I see them indispensable. They are just indispensable for all of us if we are going to, to understand and be able to actually apply Paul's applications. And they are also indispensable for us if we are going to grow and become who God intends us to be. These two verses are so importantly, arguably, when you ask biblical scholars, the, you know, what are the most important verses in the Bible? You know, Romans 12, 1 and 2 at least makes the list. It is just that important for the Christian life 
and for us to be conformed to the image of Christ. So we're gonna, this morning, we're gonna do a deeper dive into these verses, into the words. We're gonna examine the phrases. We really wanna learn what is God saying to us this morning, and we're gonna do this by way of four gospel applications. And if you wanna write down maybe a short blurb, those of you who like outline, you know, we're gonna look at the basis of our consecration, right? The scope of our consecration, the means of our consecration and the fruit of our consecration. And I'll give you some descriptors with that as we go along. But let's start with the basis of our consecration. It's up on the screen for you. God's mercy and grace is the motivation of our consecration to him. And the very first portion of verse one, I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God. The basis of our consecration is God's mercies and grace. And this is what Paul starts by pointing out. In the New International Version, it it says it differently. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercies, right? And so Paul is appealing to what we understand about God's mercies. He begins with this word, therefore. That's important because what he's encouraging us to do is on the basis of everything that he has brought to us, all the mercies of God that he has brought to us in the previous 11 chapters, consecrate ourselves to God. The mercies of God become the basis for this. And we see these mercies even within the therefores of the book of Romans. If you go back to Romans chapter three, there's the therefore of God's announcement of our sin and our need for a savior. In chapter five, there's the therefore of God's justification. In chapter six, there's the therefore of our deliverance from the power of sin. In chapter eight, there's the therefore of the assurance of our salvation through the gift of the Holy Spirit that we have now dwelling within us. In chapters nine and 10, there's the therefore of God's sovereign grace, that he's in control, bringing this mercy to the people who he intends to give it to. The therefores of the book of Romans, they tell us all about God's mercies. We've experienced this mercy and this grace, right? In a myriad of ways, these mercies of God, they cry out for us, they demand of us that we consecrate our lives to Jesus Christ. And these mercies of God are not just the mercies that we have received in the past with our salvation, although that's a large part of the previous 11 verses. These mercies of God that he's talking to are not just relegated to our salvation. It's the mercies that we also receive even right now through our sanctification, because it is the ongoing mercies of God that makes our sanctification possible. You know, uh, in my own life, I think, in fact, I think there's, it's, a, it's a common experience for Christians maybe at different stages of their Christian development and walk with the Lord to, to adopt an unbiblical perspective as it relates to our sanctification and consecration to God. And a pastor friend of mine describes it like this, right? We, um, we have no trouble in believing that our justification comes to us by God's grace, right? Through faith in Christ alone. We have no problem believing in justification is by grace alone, in faith, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But when it comes to our sanctification, we have a tendency to add to God's grace our own meritorious works, 
our own self-effort. And, and so it, come, it kind of comes like this. It comes across like this. Let's imagine that there's this great room, a giant room, you know, and God's on one side of the room, and we're on the other side of the room, right? and when it comes to our sanctification, God walks to, you know, from that side of the room to the middle of the room, and he looks at us, and he invites us, and then, you know, we walk from the other side of the room to the middle of the room to join God, and then together we work for our sanctification, right? Meeting him at the halfway point. Wrong. No, it's wrong. Just as God, when it, just as God completely walked across the room to the other side of the room where we are and poured out his mercy upon us so that we could be justified, in the same way, God walks all the way across the room to where we are and he pours out his mercy upon us when it comes to sanctification. Our sanctification, our consecration of God to God is totally dependent upon these mercies being poured out upon us. And as he pours out his mercy upon us, it motivates us, it empowers us to actually grow in Christ, become more like Christ, and to consecrate ourselves to him. This is the basis of our consecration. It is the mercies of God. It is his grace that he pours out on us that makes it all possible. How about the scope of our consecration? The scope of our consecration, it is infinitely reasonable for God to want the totality of our lives consecrated to him. The second part of verse one, right? I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, he says, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, that's vivid language, right? Even us, though we've not been raised in the culture like the, the people of Paul's day, we get what he's alluding to here. You know, in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system, even in the pagan religions of the Romans, there was a sacrificial system. You know, for the, the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, if you go to Leviticus chapter 1, where they start laying out the sacrifices, the most common of all of the sacrifices that the Israelites would make to God was what is called a burnt offering, a whole burnt offering. And in a whole burnt offering, the worshiper would bring to God the prime animal from his flock. If it was, you know, you know, uh, you know cows and steers, he'd bring the, the prime bull, right? If it was goats, it would be the prime male goat. If it was sheep, the prime male sheep. They would bring this to the temple. And unlike the other sacrifices where after it was done, you know, the priest would get part of the meat and the worshiper would get part of the meat. I often wondered, did they argue over the filet? I'm not sure I would have, right? I want the tenderloin. Give me that strap, please. But anyway, I digress. Unlike those sacrifices where they would share meat and then they would eat it later, the whole burnt offering, neither the priest or the worshiper got any of the meat. All the meat, the, all the entirety of this prime valuable animal was burned up in offering to God. It all belonged to him. And so the picture here is that we come before this holy, perfect, all-powerful God, and we totally and completely offer up ourselves to him for his good pleasure. And Paul specifically uses the word bodies. 
This is intentional because in the Roman world, he's writing to the Romans, right? In the Roman world, the Greek world, the body was kind of treated very cavalierly. It was almost disdain. The physical, the material world was diminished. It was just dismissed. And so when it came to the religious life of the average Roman or Greek citizen and person in the Roman Empire, they had this weird dichotomy going on, right? Religion and their faith, their worship tended to be very spiritual, very esoteric, very abstract, theoretical, very philosophical, very inward and very personal with no connection to their outer life, right? You had your religious life, that was your soul, and it was disconnected from what you did with the rest of your life. So you could do whatever you wanted with the rest of your life in the physical realm as long as your heart was right, right? You know, know, after dinner, you want to go down into the temple and cavort with with a temple courtesan? Go ahead. It's physical. No big deal. As long as your heart's right, go to it. Have fun, right? And so this inward dichotomy, this dichotomy of religion between the spiritual life and the physical life, this was a very real issue. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians writes so much about moral impurity and the immorality of the Corinthians because they had this dichotomy going on. I have my spiritual faith, that's my soul, my body, well, that doesn't matter, right? The rest of my life belongs to me. I can do whatever I want with my body. I can do whatever I want with my money, my career, my possessions, my children, my family, uh, my dreams, my ambitions. In this physical world, that's mine, my soul. That is God's. That's what he gets, right? And Paul goes, no, 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 no. It's your body. So Paul's getting very primal here. He's getting very earthy. He's, he's really getting into the practical rhythms of our lives here. He, the very least, when he uses the word bodies, he has in mind our minds, our brains, our ears, our eyes, our mouths, our tongues, our hands, our feet, right? At the very least, he has our physical bodies being consecrated to God. He does this in Romans chapter 6, right? In Romans 6, We read this, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. But it's likely that Paul has more in mind here than just our physical bodies. It's very likely that he's talking more holistically. He has the entirety of our being. So now we're talking about our bodies, We're talking about our mind, we're talking about our soul, we're talking about our will, the entirety of our being, and, and here's the important part, the entirety of our existence. So our possessions, our dreams and ambitions, our families, our careers, everything, you name it. It's all in Paul's crosshairs here. And he says, offer it all to God. Don't hold anything back. It's a living sacrifice to be offered up to God, to be consecrated to him. It's a daily way of life that says, excuse me, everything I am, Lord, everything I want to do, everything I see is important, everything I have, it all belongs to you, Lord. It's all yours. And in point, his point here in saying that, because that's a big ask, right? 
he says it is infinitely reasonable for God to ask for the entirety of our existence to be consecrated to him. Those words at the end of verse 1, which is your spiritual or your true or your genuine worship, depending upon your translation. Actually, I don't like any of those words. I think that's a bad translation. I think the King James, actually, the King James translators got it right. It comes from the word logikos, from which we get the word logic. Paul says, this is your reasonable. This is your sensible service. This is your rational response of worship. Why? Why is it infinitely reasonable to want God, for God to want us to consecrate the entirety of our existence to him? Because of his mercies. Because of the mercies that he has poured out upon us. The mercies that he's continuing to pour out upon us. I mean, just think for a moment. What did it cost God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? We're talking about this being Trinity Sunday, right? What did it cost the triune God for Jesus to come to the cross and redeem us from our sins? When we talk about a living sacrifice, who personifies this more than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? who gave up all that he had, the glories of heaven, the perfect unity and community of the Father and the Spirit. He gave, he laid aside his rights and his privileges, and instead he adopts a human life, lives it, dies on the cross for our sins. It is infinitely reasonable for us to consecrate the entirety of our beings and offer it back to the Lord who offered his life and laid it down on the cross for our sins. It just makes sense. It's just a rational response, Paul says. And in fact, to not consecrate ourselves to him is irrational. In modern language, that's dumb, stupid, right? What are you thinking? Kent Hughes, the longtime pastor at Wheaton Church, said this, halfway commitment is irrational. To decide to give part of your life to God and keep other parts for yourself, to say, everything is yours, Lord, but this relationship, this deal, this pleasure, that is beyond spiritual logic. Right? So there's the basis of our consecration, it's God's mercies. There's the scope of our consecration. God wants the entirety of our being consecrated to him, offered up to him, and this is infinitely, infinitely reasonable for us to do. How about the means of our consecration? The Holy Spirit will accomplish our consecration through repentance and renewal. Verse two says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You have a positive and a negative here in this one verse, in this first half of verse two, which are important for us if we're going to daily experience this offering up of ourselves of being living sacrifices. The command is to not be conformed to this world. And in this command, that is a command of continual repentance, to reject the worldly system that we live in. Conformity to the world 
is characteristic of a halfway commitment that Dr. Hughes refers to. Literally, this word means stop putting on a costume and hiding that contradicts who you are in Jesus Christ. When we're conformed to the world, we're wearing a costume that hides who we are in Christ. And so the command says, stop wearing a costume that hides your identity in Christ. Do not be conformed to this world, to this age that we live in, the spirit of this age, the agenda, the focus of this culture. Don't allow the objectives of your life to be the objectives of our society. Don't let the culture shape your life's goals. Don't let the culture say, this is who you are. This is your identity. Understand our identities in Christ. Our goals are grounded in eternity, in the age to come. Our identity and our goals is in Christ and in his kingdom. And this determines who we are. So he says, stop wearing a costume that hides this. That instead looks like the world around you, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says that in a different way. He says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Okay, so what does it mean to be renewed in the mind? to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, right? It means that we're to have a gospel-saturated mind, a mind that is gripped by the truth of God's word. It includes, <coughs> excuse me, intellectual understanding and reasoning, but it's more than the accumulation of biblical knowledge. It's more than knowing who Abraham's wife was and, and being able to recite back the doctrines of God's word. It's much more than this. Tim Keller writes, it is not less than the intellectual. It does mean to have truth from God's word dwell in us richly, but it is more than that. Not just that we think true thoughts, but that the governing influence of our mind is reoriented. In modern terminology, one's imagination is captured by Christ. Who he is and what he does fires the imagination and controls our minds. So how does this happen? How does this actually come into being in our lives? May I suggest it's not how I've actually taught in previous churches in early years of ministry or in ways that I have thought in the past. Um, it doesn't happen through us doing it doesn't happen through our performance and our self-effort. It doesn't happen through me meeting God at the midpoint of the room. And he does his part and I do my part. I really want you to get this, church. If you don't get anything else out of what I'm saying this morning, please don't walk out of here thinking that the way that I have a renewed mind is I do my part and God does his part. And by us working together like this cooperatively, you know, we can achieve great things together doesn't happen through our self-effort and our works righteousness. Our consecration to God, it doesn't happen through doing. It happens through letting. 
There's a big difference here. Read that out loud with me. I really want you to get this seared in your mind, okay? Read it out loud with me, ready? Our consecration to God doesn't happen through us doing. It happens through us letting. It happens through us letting. What do I mean by that? Well, that word transformed, it comes from the Greek word metamorpho, from which we get the word metamorphosis. I saw a great example of this on social media the last week or so. I've been really enjoyed watching the Padilla children do a science experiment. And they had, uh, you know, caterpillars, they had the cocoons, and just recently those cocoons uh, had life and they burst forth. The most beautiful butterflies came out of those uh, cocoons. It was really neat to see. And then that's what the idea here is, that we're to be so transformed that we experience a radical change from one state of existence to another state of existence. Be transformed. This is the imperative mood. It is the voice of kingly authority and command, right? This is the voice that Jesus used. At the beginning of, of his ministry, in his first message to the Israelites, he says to them, repent, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Remember that? That's the imperative. He's drawing a line in the sand. <clears throat> he calls for their response. And, and depending upon that response, it would determine whether or not they continued to, to walk with Jesus and have a relationship with him. And so in Romans chapter 12, verse two, this is a command, this is an imperative. It's the kingly voice, but... And here's the critical thing. This is why it's letting, not doing. It is in the passive voice, okay? And that's important to understand. It's a command that is directed at us, but we are not the active doer who accomplishes the command. The command is directed at us, but it's understood with the passive voice that though we have responsibilities, we are not the one who does it, right? We're the recipient of someone else's doing. Someone else who has the responsibility to do the active work of transformation, yet it carries with it the responsibility for us to cooperate with that person who's doing the work. Do you get where I'm going here? Who's the person who is responsible for doing the actual work of transformation. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, right? He's the one who's responsible. It is He who works in us to transform us. In Philippians 2, verse 13, Paul will write, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. Let's illustrate it. The Holy Spirit walks across the room. He pours out the mercies of God. And what are those mercies of God? A growing desire in our lives to live for God, to serve God. A growing desire to, in our lives to, to honor Him, to be used by Him, to serve Him. How do I do that? I can't, here's some power. Here's more mercy. Here's my power. We gotta get this, church. It's the Spirit who does the transforming. He's the doer. We let. We cooperate. We let this happen. We say, yes, change me, Lord. Everything I am is yours. Change me. Work in me. Use me. 
In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul will use this word one other time. He only uses it twice here in 2 Corinthians 3. So all of us, he writes, who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. Now read the last half of the verse with me. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. And the Spirit and me, working side by side, exerting my effort, we make us more and more like Jesus. No. No. Our consecration with God comes about not through our doing and our self-effort and our performance mentality and our works righteousness. It happens through us letting. Say, well, what does this mean that I don't read my Bible, that I don't know? You see, there's two different mindsets at play here, right? The doer mindset says, okay, for me to be close with God, I need a Bible reading plan. And I want a Bible reading plan with check boxes. So as I finish that Bible, I can check, 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 check. And listen, you know what else? I'm, I'm tithing. And, and hey, I'm praying. I'm praying regularly. And hey, I'm going to church. I'm not sitting home. You know, even before coronavirus, I didn't stay home in my pajamas and watch the church on TV. No, I come regularly and I serve and I give and, and I read the Bible and I make sure I pray and I share my faith. I'm doing, growing to be, no. You see, when that's our mentality that it happens through us doing, it doesn't happen. That's meeting Jesus halfway in the middle of the room saying, no, no, not, no, no, not at all. Let me give you an example. You know, does this mean we don't read the Bible? Of course it doesn't mean that. We need to be meditating on the Word of God, but it all depends on our posture when we come to the Scriptures as to whether or not it's a doer mentality or a letting mentality. So, for example, I would really encourage you, when you open up your Bible, whether you have a reading program or don't have a reading program, when you sit down to worship God in the morning, the afternoon, the evening, whenever it is, that you first start with prayer. Before you ever read the Bible to check it off, you start with prayer. And you humbly come before the Lord and you say, Lord, I'm a sinner. My, I need your word to feed me. I need you to change me. I, need, I, I want you to take control of my life, but I need you to do it. Would you feed me from your word this morning? But you change my thoughts. And then as you read and you're convicted, you come back to the Lord in prayer again. You go, Lord, <laughs> I can't do it. I need your power. I need your presence. Would you give me the grace so that I can obey your scriptures, your word, so that I can be your man, so that I can be the husband I'm supposed to be, the father I'm supposed to be, the leader I'm supposed to be, because I can't do it, Lord. Work through me. You see, we all want his mercy and his grace at salvation, but church, we need his mercy in and through our lives every minute of the day if we're going to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Do you, are you tracking with, do you understand what I'm saying here? Don't hear me say that you just sit back passively and all right, well, Lord, if you want me to be like Jesus, you'll stop me from smoking weed. But until you stop my hand, okay? That's, that's not it at all, okay? Sorry, I probably should have done it so, accurate, <laughs> so accurately. So, 
Bad Jerry. We are not the active doer. But we are an active participant who responds to the leading and to the inner presence of the Holy Spirit. Our transformation does not come about through our work and our self-effort. It comes about through God the Holy Spirit walking across the room and pouring out yet even more mercy in our lives. If you have an area where you're struggling this morning and you're not getting victory, the issue for you, and I know this from personal experience, is I'm fi- you face that issue in your own strength and your own power. <clears throat> I'm gonna get through this, blah, 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 blah. The issue is we aren't desperate enough, we aren't weak enough. How do we live in the Christian life? Through dying, through being a living sacrifice. By letting the Holy Spirit be the one to break us down and empower us for obedience. And when this happens, when the Christian life is happening as it's supposed to be, this inner transformation begins. And whenever there's an inner transformation, it overflows into our external lives and how we live and how we obey. And that brings us to the final gospel application, the fruit of our consecration. Living within the perfect and good will of God is the result of a consecrated life. I wanna read verse two to you again, but from a different translation, because I think it does a a neat job of capturing some aspects of of this verse that the English standard doesn't. From the New English Bible, we read this. Adapt yourselves no longer to the pattern of this present world but let your minds be remade and your whole nature thus transformed. Then, as a consequence of transformation, the result, the fruit of being transformed, then you will be able to discern the will of God and to know what is good, acceptable, and perfect. The fruit of our consecration is that we live within the will of God. Is is there any question that I have had asked more of me throughout my ministry than this simple question. Jerry, what is God's will for fill in the blank, right? Jerry, I, I really need to know God's will for whether I should take this job. Jerry, I really need to know, is it God's will for me to marry this person? Man, I've been asked that one scores of times, right? Jerry, I really need to know, is it God's will for me to to move from Palm Bay and take a job somewhere else? Jerry, um, is it God's will for me to divorce my spouse? See, I get marriage questions and divorce questions. Uh, This is just a common, is it really, is it, I'm struggling with where my kids should go to school. What is God's will for, okay? Now, oftentimes, some of the things I've been asked through the years are so obviously you know, that, you know, it's just go to the scriptures and here it says, right? No, you shouldn't do this, right? It's just obvious. But a lot of times, most of the times, these questions are not so clear cut. And so we ask, we want to know, I'm a Christian, how do I do this? And probably a great number of times people have left my office and thought to themselves, well, that was a royal waste of time (laughs) because of the way I answered this question. 
Here's how I answer it. It's based out, really out of chapter 12, verse 2. I will talk, I'll walk through people and I'll walk with them and we'll look at their spiritual life. But the essential conclusion is this. If you are humbly coming before God, submitting your life to him on a daily basis, you can honestly say the desire of my heart, Lord, everything I am, who I am, what I have, what I do, the entirety of my existence, I really want, I know I'm not perfect, but I really want you to have it. I want you to use it. I want you to work in me and through me. And if that is the heart song that is your, that is the song of your heart, and you are feeding your mind with the riches of God's word and allowing the gospel to reshape you and grip your mind in the truth of God's word to create your paradigm and you're offering yourself light and you genuinely are, if that is who you are, then do what you want to do. Because more often than not, what you want to do is going to be aligned with God's will. We don't have to, you know, get together a bunch of bones and dice and throw them out on the floor and see what comes up. We don't, we don't have to go to extreme measures to discern God's will. If, if, we are, if, we're trans, if we're consecrated to him, loving him, offering ourselves to him on a regular basis, do you want to marry her? Yes, she's awesome. Marry her, okay? Well, marry her then. You want to take the job? Yeah, really. You know, man, this has been my dream job, but, you know, we'll take it. <laughs> it's not that hard. You know, God loves us. And, and, and you know, here's a good thing. Can I just give you some comfort? And we'll end on this. Just some comfort. If you really are interacting with God from that perspective, and we'll never be perfect at it, obviously. We're always polluted by sin. But if this is the general rhythm of your heart and life, here's the good news. Even if you make a decision that actually wasn't God's will, His mercies are so great, I can't sp- He'll stop you from making a, a life-shattering decision. He won't let you make a royal mess of your life and your family and everything else when you are living and relating to him through this, from this posture of consecration. You may not make every decision perfectly right, but his mercies are so great that he turns up maybe what was a boneheaded decision into a learning lesson that makes you into a better follower of Jesus Christ. His mercies really are that great, that powerful, and that extensive to us, his children, who he loves. So relax and enjoy your life when you're consecrated following him. Let's pray. Father, would you give us the mercy that we need as we live our lives in a, in a society that more and more does not reflect the values of the gospel and God, how to interact with that society, it's difficult. And we, we need your wisdom. We need your power. Lord, we need you to walk across the room and, and pour your spirit out upon us, your mercy upon us, power of the Holy Spirit so that we can honor you. Lord, most importantly, would you give all of us just a deep, abiding yearning to have the entirety of our existence be yours, Lord Jesus. May we offer everything that we are, everything that we love. May we offer it to you and may we do it regularly and daily 
And may this truly reflect who we are as a church. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.